Hello, this message comes to you from Transfiguration Sunday, February 27th, 2022, preached by the pastor of St. Peter's United Church of Christ, the redheaded preacher, and that's me, Richard Lanford. I'm honored to be the pastor and preacher here and have been for many years. The scriptures today about the transfiguration and from turning into glory by the grace of God ourselves are 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 12 to the second verse of chapter 4 and the gospel according to Luke chapter 9 verses 28 through 43a and the reader you will hear is Beth Lanford. The sermon is called What Good is Glory? And in the context of the invasion of the Ukraine, I'll touch on that early on, but actually by the time you listen to this, um, I will have offered pastoral prayers, which largely was about that invasion. So I hope you will enjoy this message. It's a bit different uh, because Transfiguration Sunday is a bit different. And the idea of glory is not something we talk about or think about very much in the mainline Christian church. That's what I think. And so I'm going to talk about that. I'll see you on the other side, or excuse me, I will uh, speak with you on the other side. And uh, here come the scriptures. Since then, we have had such a hope. We act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry. We do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. This is a reading from 2 Corinthians. Our second reading is also our gospel lesson. It is Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 43a, the story of the transfiguration and what happened the day after. The reading begins, now about eight days after these sayings, this is a reference back to Peter claiming Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus responding 
by telling them that the Son of Man must be killed and rise, and that his followers must take up their cross if they would follow him. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw the glory, his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and in those days told no one of the things that they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. Just then, a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth and mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your, your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded by the greatness of God. Here ends the reading of the gospel and our scriptures for this morning's service. Thanks be to God for this, the word of God, and for the people of God. I may be wrong, but I think one of the most glossed over automatic pilot parts of the Lord's Prayer, which we just concluded, is the ending. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I think that along with that whole small phrase, many of us tend not to engage with the thine is the glory part. Glory? Do you and I really even think much about glory? except maybe when imagining the new heaven and the new earth, or the image of God in heaven like in Isaiah 6, or on a day like today, Transfiguration Sunday, when the Gospels tell the story of 
Jesus' face and clothing becoming dazzling white, changed in some glorious, bright, unearthly way. And Paul writes about glory today, too. Well, foremost in our minds today is probably the invasion of the Ukraine. That's far from glory. That's the kind of horrific event which leads us to emphasize, for thine is the kingdom, and not some state like Putin's Russia. I remember preaching on this transfiguration passage and the part following, which has Jesus healing the possessed son and laying out in that sermon how much how such ministry is also where we see the glory of Christ. If we keep that in mind, we can see God's glory in the aid given to beleaguered Ukrainians in country or who have fled as refugees. Beyond thinking that aspect of glory and beyond heavenly glory and the glory of God, which admittedly you and I could ponder more often, what good is glory? What does the transfiguration of Jesus, along with Moses and Elijah, do for us? I know the story is about Jesus and who he is. It's a story that teaches us about him and is not exactly something we can easily apply to our lives, our daily lives. What good is glory? Well, the place of glory is a place of faith and hope. Think of the big three disciples who were there. Witnessing the transfiguration, seeing this other dimension to their rabbi and friend Jesus, expanding their understanding of who he was and where he was headed, his departure in Jerusalem. If Jesus is this close to God, to reveal or reflect God's glory, it seems that they could trust Jesus' great power to overcome whatever would befall him. That's faith. Faith which gives rise to hope. If Jesus is this grand and this glorious, this holy, in conversation with specific embodiments, these spectacular embodiments, excuse me, of Moses and Elijah, the two giants in Jewish history, well, there is reason to believe in the power of God and hope in it. And then the story has the voice of God, Almighty Creator God, telling them, this is my Son, the Chosen, my Chosen, listen to Him. How much more did those three leaders of the twelve need to perceive Jesus is not only human, but somehow divine? And this event was shared with the others later. We know they were silent about it until after the resurrection, as Jesus told them in Mark's version. One hopes that when they heard this, it built up their faith and hope in who Jesus really was and is. Some of us, I expect, have had God moments or aha moments in our lives when the reality and even glory of God really grasped us. It wasn't just something that we read about. Sometimes these then become anchors of our faith when the seas of doubt and life are punishing and dangerous. Was that encounter with God the Holy real? Yes, 
then let's hang on and keep the faith even when we cannot see where we're being led or we're afraid of where we're being led. Our moments of transfiguration, if we have them in our own way, build up our faith and hope. That's what glory is good for. Now the Apostle Paul had an entirely different take on how the place of glory is a place for faith and hope. And that is our spiritual growth. Now Paul was referring, as Beth said, to the story in Exodus, I believe it's chapter 34, where the face of Moses shone brilliantly when he came down Mount Sinai back to the Hebrew encampment after conversing with Yahweh. Moses had to wear a mask or a veil to save the eyes of the others, which veil Paul then interpreted as the fading law of Moses keeping his fellow Jews from seeing the glory of Christ in the gospel of grace. And we heard Beth read, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the, the Lord, the Spirit. A, a number of folks suffer from poor self-esteem or lack of confidence, an inferiority complex, or the like. For those who sometimes feel unworthy or just not good enough much of the time, but who truly believe in and serve Jesus Christ, listen. As you and I, by faith, see the glory of the Lord Christ crucified and risen, not in the flesh, but as though reflected in a mirror, perhaps as we behold God's love around us and in the churches and the help brought to tents and trenches of the refugees and attacked, something can be happening to us. Positive change as we behold God's love around us and in the churches, as we behold that the veil is coming off, are we ready? Are we desiring a change? In this month's issue of Sojourners Magazine, Living the Word commentator T. Denise Anderson of the Presbyterian Church USA wrote this about Paul's ideas. It's a different take, but worth sharing with you. I quote, In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14, Paul references his opponents who looked back with a veiled vision or a hardening of the mind which kept them from living into their new identity. People rarely want to change. (laughs) That's my wife. People rarely want to change. We do not know what change will mean for us, what it will take away, or what it will require. We walk through a world in need of help, but mentally we are among our own altars of doctrine, theology, and polity, and or we're trying to recapture an extraordinary time in our history. If those things do not produce change beyond us, what good are they, she asks. This week precedes the season of Lent, she continued, when the church considers its mortality and repents of its sins. Many of us will fast 
or give up something temporarily. But the real challenge before us is to allow the veil to be lifted. Unveiled faces means we deeply believe in the good news. With that belief, we can perceive God at work in missions, in healing, in spiritual encounters, in changed lives, in the labor of peacemakers. We see God's glory as though reflected in a mirror we see. We keep looking there, keep spending time and energy pondering that reflection of God's glory at work, letting it affect our beliefs and how we live and how we treat each other. Having chosen to unveil our faces and look into this metaphorical mirror, we see the image of grace over law and love over self-centeredness, greed, violence, corruption, anger, apathy, and fear, which the world lives in very well. We perceive and we look and are changed into people and communities which reflect and reveal That grace, love, and power, which doesn't come from us. Self-esteem, for one thing, alone can rise. What happens, Paul says, is nothing short of astounding. Quote, All of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are, are, not maybe, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord the Spirit the image of Christ is what you and I are being changed into by the grace of God and our cooperation with the Holy Spirit from one degree of glory do you or I think we already have any glory To another, we are being transformed into the same image, the glorious image of Christ. In speaking of humans, David wrote in Psalm 8, What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. Yet you have made them a little lower than God, other translations, a little lower than the angels, and crowned them with glory and honor. I'm not making this up. This is from the Psalms. So what can this mean for those needing reassurance of their value and of God's powerful love? The place for glory is a place for faith and hope, not just for those energized by the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, but also for those touched by Paul's insights. That is really something he's claiming. And for me, this brings us to another thing glory is good for, and that is fuel for endurance. The disciples may not have yet known what the future held, despite Christ's predictions for them, and to them, excuse me. Well, both, really. But Jesus knew, and they soon would know, what was going to be happening in the future. Jesus himself is affirmed again by the voice of God on his behalf, which may have strengthened him, for the hardship, suffering, and death which awaited. And the disciples, especially the three, they had this vision to hold on to when Christ was dead and buried, when they waited later for the Spirit to be poured out upon them on Pentecost and during the persecutions which followed. 
glory indirectly fed their faith and their hope, and that fed them enough to endure all of that. The followers of Jesus had seen or heard from trusted friends who Jesus really was and how God directed them to listen to him and not to softer, easier voices. They had a sense from this event that God's kingdom was the one that would last, not Rome's, not the high priest's, Keep going. Do not quit. You are serving God, the sovereign of glory and the source of our own eventual transformation into the image of Christ. What good is glory? It has a place in our hope and faith. It so enlivens our hope and faith that like the disciples of almost 2,000 years ago and never since, we can endure. Love will last. Even as it suffers inevitable setbacks, visible defeats, seems hidden for years, and gets mocked for naivete. But those setbacks and defeats and times of hiddenness and mockery have no eternal power over us. And surely no glory. What good is glory? One last thing to offer that I got from these passages is the glory or the witnesses to it remind you and me that the material world is not all there is. Rumors of glory, to borrow a song title from Bruce Coburn, remind us there is something profoundly spiritual in our faith and service. What you, I, and St. Peter's do is often of worldly necessity Conversations about recruiting Sunday school teachers is like it's happening after worship today. Paying the bills of insurance, utilities, staff, and structure. Holding council meetings and making decisions. Organizing and putting on events like the rummage and bake sale. Seeking new folks to learn how to run the worship live stream and much more. And that's just a church part of our lives. Or there is often a hidden spiritual dimension Now, the things I just lifted up, they can be strictly physical, earthly processes and decisions. But for us, in the community of Christian faith, a gathering of those whom we are told in Scripture are being transformed from one degree of glory into another, there's a deep spiritual reality happening. You and I can be so wrapped up in the brass tacks of making progress or fixing a broken something that we forget we are here for Christ. We are ambassadors for him, Paul wrote. By grace, we're to be channels of mercy and justice and healing and peace and reconciliation and truth. It's good to remember that, to reclaim it. I think recalling the faith fact of glory helps us remember spiritual reality. About 20 years ago, I read about a pastor who always had a lit Christ candle at church council meetings. I tried that, but I failed to sustain it. The idea was there, though, to remind us that the business of the church, in a, by just one example, has a spiritual underpinning to it and is itself of a spiritual nature. In closing, long ago, when I was still at my home church in Minneapolis, A senior lady, her name was Neva Simons. Neva came over to me during coffee hour. 
And she told me how recently she had been sitting on a park bench, taking in the beauty, the songs of the birds, and was suddenly struck with a strong sense of the presence of God. She was quite serious. This was not her usual conversation. Her veil was off. She glimpsed some, glimpsed some glory and bore witness that our faith and our lives are much about much more than what we can see and taste and touch and hear and feel. Our faith and our lives indeed are steeped in spirit, capital S. That's good news. Amen. Well, I hope that counts as good news for you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Redheaded Preacher Podcast. I hope it helps you to think some more about glory, because parts of the New Testament really do lift it up and find joy in this prospect, not only in the next life, but as part of this life on earth, and I just thought it deserved some attention for both aspects. So, I hope you enjoyed it, and I uh, enjoyed presenting different parts of glory with the question of what good is it. So, I hope you'll tune in next Sunday, or after next Sunday, to hear the message from next Sunday, which will be the first Sunday in Lent. And our pyramids changed to purple and all of that good stuff. And it's uh, Communion Sunday coming up, which means that the message might be a little briefer. Time will tell on that. But again, my appreciation for tuning in. And I ask for God to bless you and bless your week. Amen.